Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello. We're going to have fun today, I think. We've got a good conversation about power dynamics in the book publishing process that I think should be fairly interesting. We're going to beg a little. <laughs> but I figure before we do before we do any of those lovely things, why don't you give us the basics, huh? Wonderful. So we are officially halfway into May, which means that our query episode is already out if you are a Patreon subscriber. Um, if you're not, head on over to patreon.com and search for Print Run, um, and you will be able to have access to that. Our first pages episode will be going live in 10 days. That is May the 25th, which is on a Thursday, turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still have time to send your first pages into us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com for us to critique. We will be critiquing anonymously from first pages, from writers just like you. Uh, so get those in. We're really, really excited to to record that episode this month. Yeah. Um, so you have listed here that we've got some Harry Potter thing we need to talk about. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a very sad Harry Potter thing, Eric. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll hold my tongue. But you, <laughs> so you. apparently Joe, dear Joe, friend of the podcast. Joe? Joe, Joe Rowling, Joanne oh. Rowling. I didn't actually know that was her first name. Joe. Mm-hmm. Joe, do we know what the K stands for? I mean, like, I'm sure somebody <laughs> does. We've lost all our book credibility. I we don't get don't. to be on the air anymore. This is our last episode of Print Run Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we better make it a good one. Um, so anyway, what about Joe? So a couple of years ago, I'm actually not sure when it was written, but in 2008, she coughed up a postcard Mm-hmm. To Sotheby's, mm-hmm. which is the big, like, fancy art British. Auctioner, yeah. yeah, the big art auctioner yeah. um, for some sort of charity auction. Uh-huh. That doesn't matter. The, what matters is, is that what it was, it was a postcard that contained a prequel to Harry Potter written on it. Okay. <laughs> now I'm irritated. Uh, <laughs> so, so. This postcard, so she wrote an 800-word prequel to Harry Potter on a postcard, and she wrote this when, in 2008? No, no, no. She sold it in 2008 for charity. Okay, when did she write it? I don't know. Because it, like... I don't know. Nobody knows. It's a mystery. Before (laughs) 2008. That's all I know. Okay. So it sold for 25,000 pounds. Uh-huh. And it has kind of it's it's a story of James Potter and Sirius Black kind of yeah. chasing all on your brooms. old pals up to hijinks. Yeah, yeah, just hijinks. They get some Muggle police officers very upset with them, and they're <laughs> riding motorcycles, and then they're riding broomsticks, and it's a whole big I thing. I feel like you. It would be very difficult to describe Harry Potter to someone who has like never read it and make it sound as cool as it actually ended up being. Yeah. I just sounded like a doofus <laughs> there. I mean. <laughs> that was a nice way of saying you sounded like a doofus just there. Um, but so the thing got stolen. Yep. Nine years ago, uh-huh. it sold. It's been kind of living in somebody's house or something right. since then. Uh, and it's been stolen. So somebody around here is walking around with a postcard. I don't know how – first of all, can we, t- can we take a moment and think about how small she had to write – to get to 800 f- words on a postcard. To get 800 words on a you postcard? you got to write pretty small. Um, the first thing I'm doing as the guy who has this postcard is definitely changing the words on the postcard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the white out out. I'm doing the whole thing. I've got the document. I've got the only version of the document. Absolutely. You're just and changing the I'm words. I'm already a guy who's stealing from, you know, charities. Like, I'm, I'm already a bad dude. Might as well just, like... Get this stuff going, yeah. So no, you're I'm, gonna change muggles to like chuckles yeah, yeah, yeah. or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially because like so much of Harry Potter fandom seems to be like going back in and reinterpreting the text in whatever way we want. Head, um, changing so, the head canon. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So um, I would definitely be trying to do things like throwing these people for a loop by changing what was on this little card, and then oh my gosh, it's been revealed! I gave it back to Sotheby's, and it's like everything is like different on it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great. Uh, so police officers, Eric Hayne is in Minneapolis, uh, so come on and get him. I wish I was the thief. I wish I was the thief. There's been a lot of, like, Britishy book thieving this year. I know, no, it's been great. Um, though the last time, the last time we did that, um, the last time we had a British book thieving, uh, every single person I know texted me and was like, it was probably for the insurance idiot, so I I felt... I felt, like, really dumb I feel like your friends need more wonder in their lives. They do need, you know what, Laura? That's so true. <laughs> they do need more wonder in their lives, and they're listening right now, and they can, they can take that to heart. So as we all know, 
Harry Potter, maybe perhaps even the 800-word prequel that you're going to change all the words to, uh, was a New York Times bestseller. And what do we know about the New York Times bestsellers? They're the only good books. They are the only good books. They're the only good books. And now there are less good books because we've slashed some of the lists. Yep. Sorry, yep. books. Sorry, books. There are fewer of you that are good. Uh, but there's there's one thing that I'd like to note today. I was looking at the list of only good books because um, how else am I going to know what to read? And I noticed something, Eric. Mm-hmm. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. Uh, this book that Oprah is now turning into a movie. Uh-huh. That's that's quite the that's a good thing to have it said about. Sure <laughs> is. Uh, so this this book has spent 191 weeks on the New York Times bestseller 191. list. 191. 100. Do you know how many years that is? It's three and change, isn't it? 3.67 yeah. years. Whew. That is three and two thirds years. Um, so I I just like to point out. I mean I don't. I, I mean we should all watch. Uh, Oprah Win- Winfrey act for the first time in a very long time in oh, this she's, film. Wait, 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 she's in the movie. She's in it. She what's she gonna? Well, who is well, who's her character? I think she's the daughter uh-huh. of Henrietta Lacks. I'm not actually sure. I don't know. Like Oprah's I don't watch previews or something. a little old to be the daughter unless we're dealing with older folks, huh? No, no, no. Was that, so was that rude? Was that inappropriate? <laughs> <laughs> so. So the investigation yeah. of this whole story happened yeah. when yeah. Henrietta Lacks was dead and gone in a long time. So like mm-hmm. the older – so the, the 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 children were older by then, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Either that or she's the one investigating this story. I'm not entirely certain, but I'm pretty sure she plays the daughter. Okay. Um, so I'd just like to point out that this book is not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we're definitely going to make it to four years, maybe yeah. forever. Well, yeah, we got a movie coming out. We've just got a whole new head of steam. And it's not yeah. even just a movie. It's an Oprah movie. <laughs> it's an Oprah movie. And I would just like to point out that it really is true that Henrietta Lacks is going to be alive forever because not only will her cells not die, <laughs> but her place on the New York Times bestseller as one of the only good books will yeah. also not die. Yeah, I'm going to start doing that with my books is you've got to start like referencing its own publishing history in the book. Like I would definitely make like being on the New York Times bestseller list like a major plot point in whatever novel I end up selling. Yeah. 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 That'll be good. Yeah, that'll be really good. <laughs> Except for like the whole like cells not dying happened first, but that's good no, to no, reverse no. engineer. No, it. no, I definitely want to reverse engineer this in as lazy a form as possible. I think you have a really good chance of making that happen. <laughs> um, speaking of reverse engineering in as lazy a form as possible, BEA is this month. Okay, tell tell our <laughs> listeners what BEA is. Okay, so um, the BEA holds a special. Um, a special spot in our hearts, I think, because when we started practicing this show, um, you you, <laughs> you people might not believe this, but we were really um, bad. Well, well, don't say that because then we're going to get a bunch of um, we're going to get roasted because <laughs> people telling us we're still bad, <laughs> right? But um, <laughs> when we were doing practice episodes in the months prior um, to our release, a lot of the stuff we did was just like roasting the hell out of BEA That's because true. it's this. Um, it's this big giant book conference that happens once a year, right? In New York, almost every single year. Last year it was in Chicago, year, right? but and we went. Um, it's this big giant trade show where all the publishers go and a bunch of other people go. There's some authors signing books. There's some uh, I don't know agents go to kind of meet with editors and so forth. Um, it's not just author signing books. Like last year, we were you and I were walking down the rows, and yeah. we just saw the the lead singer from Corn just like standing there. <laughs> well, he was and an author signing books. It was an author, and there was not the a line at all. Had, yeah, that I was, was crazy. like, I don't think that the people who come to BEA are Corn yeah. listeners. Yeah, but I looked, and then I took a double take, and I was like, Oh, well, that. <laughs> is somebody that doesn't belong here who is signing a book. Okay. I, I feel – I resent you saying he doesn't belong there. Books are for everyone, including the lead singer of Corn, That's Who true. apparently even wrote a book. So. Yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was there yeah. last year yeah, too. Yeah, that was good. He was very tall. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so this year, BEA is happening. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, I, I brought it up um, here not because um, there's too much to say about it, but because um, the galley list has come out. Like one thing that happens at BEA – uh, which stands for um, Book Exp- Exposé of America or something, Exposition. Book Expo. Um, yeah. I think it's just it's Expo. Actually, no, they got – that was like the big ch- – <laughs> they like proposed because like last year kind of flopped. So they – Because it was in Chicago. Right. Um, and no one in New York ever wants to leave New York City. Um, so no one came. But Except for us. We were there. <laughs> we're not in New York City. Um, so 
they they were like promising like big changes. We're gonna make it way better. And the two things they did to make it better, near as I can tell, is they made it half a day shorter and they got rid of the word America in the title. Oh really? Yeah. So now it's it's just called Book Expo two seven uh, twenty seventeen. It's like one word, you know, like Book Expo, like one thing where like the E is capitalized mid word because that's like fashionable. It's forever going to um, be BEA to me, yeah. just the way that Nickelodeon Universe at the Mall of America is forever going to be Camp Snoopy. <laughs> I miss Camp Snoopy. I know. Yeah. Anyway. It had a butter color scheme. Um, mm. So one thing that happens at this giant trade show is all the presses, um, they come out with their, their books for the fall, right? And they do this through galleys, which are these advanced reader copies. They're all these, you know, they're basically... Um, bound versions of the page proofs, right? And you give them out to all the people. You give them to bloggers. You give them to They've got the people. marketing info on the back. Right. The idea is to generate, is to cheaply generate word of mouth um, before the book comes out, usually in the fall. And fall is the big publishing season um, And so what that, what that means for actually being at BEA is yeah. it means that, you know, if you have several hundred of these books – Usually they come out – if there's not an author signing, they come out right when the door opens, right when the bell rings Mm -hmm. at like 9 a.m. or something. And these publishers have created like these beautiful <laughs> sculptures of books. Yeah. There was there were there was one publisher, I, I think it might have been Harlequin or something, yeah. where they had um they had like these wells. Yeah. Made. No, Hachette usually does oh, Hachette, wells. Oh, Hachette, sorry. Yeah. They um, were just like and they were literally yeah. like treating books like bricks in yeah. this big circle, like you would expect <laughs> like the the girl from the ring to crawl right. out of. <laughs> and then the doors open and all of the bloggers Income the bloggers. Income the blog. Like seriously, it's only the bloggers. It's not you know the the New York Times people because you know whatever. It's the bloggers and they come and they have all these empty tote bags and they just come screeching in. Well, a lot of publishers give tote bags too. Correct. Like you can get a bunch of tote bags at this thing. Um, <laughs> they come screeching in and there are like literally elbows flying. Yeah. There's pushing. Yeah. There's snatching. You don't even look at what you grab. You just grab. So last year, um, last year we went um, as agents, but the year before that, I was I was with a publisher and I went, and I was we had a booth right next to the beautiful people making the beautiful book sculpture. Mm. Um, you know, so how do you feel about my that? Jo- well, so that was the thing is my job with like one or two coworkers was to set up our booth right and to like make supposedly to like make our st- our books look beautiful on display and everything and one thing about me is i am just absolutely terrible at all like design things <laughs> I like, thought you were just going to stop it terrible n- n- well, no 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 well sure but um <laughs> you know when it comes to like the kind of aesthetics and artistic like i'm j- i just have no eye for it and so i started like stacking these books in whatever manner i pleased which was terribly um but i made a little thing out of them and eventually our boss comes by and, like, again, next to us is, like, the Taj Mahal of books, right? Like, literally, and- <laughs> like, a doghouse <laughs> yeah, yeah, made yeah. of books. Like, someone's, like, living in there at that point. They've got, like, Wi-Fi set up in the book. <laughs> um, and we... <laughs> And I've got like, you know, four stacked with like one kind of leaned in front, you know, as like a display version. It was it was very sad, and I was forced to forced to redo it. Um, what did you redo it to? Um, I don't know. Some the same fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just when she wasn't looking, I don't know. <laughs> um, but um, so. Again, anyway, it's a long way of saying that there are there are galleys at BEA, and the idea is that you're generating enthusiasm for your biggest season, which comes a few months later in the fall. And so um, today we've got out <clears throat> um, this list of all the different uh, galley copies that these various uh, publishers are going to have put out on display, and um, these are ostensibly the books that these presses are most excited about uh, for this fall. And so my question to you, Laura is were you attending BEA, and neither of us are this year, um, What, which ones would you be grabbing based on this list you're seeing here? So I came into this expecting that I could only beg for three on air because that's <laughs> when it starts. You know, four yeah. is when it gets pathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're doing, yeah, we're doing this so that people grab them for us. Right? Yeah, um, so listeners, editors, agents, uh, writers, bloggers who are hopefully listening to us that will be at BEA. Yeah. Um, You'll become a capital F friend of the capital P podcast <laughs> if yeah. you get us these yeah, books. Yeah, send me. Yeah, send me these. Uh, so, what do you got? So, I'm. I tried to go for something very eclectic, uh-huh. right? 
Uh, so the first one I s- kind of nabbed in my head is by Newberry Honor author Victoria Jameson. Uh-huh. And it's called All's Fair in Middle School. Yeah. And fair is F-A-I-R-E. <coughs> and it is a graphic novel about starting middle school and also about life at the Renaissance Fair. Hell yeah. So it's a graphic, it's a middle middle grade graphic novel yeah. about like geeky Renaissance Fair people. I hope there are elephants. It's by uh, Penguin Book for, Book for Young Readers. So if you're stopping by the Penguin Booth, I, I would like up, that. I pick up every book I've ever picked up and say, I hope there are elephants. Yeah. 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 They're very smart. <laughs> we are not going on an elephant tangent. Um, Fine. What else? What else you got? Um, I also picked – so honorable mention to Adam Silvera. He got knocked because I thought that four was desperate, but it turns out Eric has four. Um, so I'm throwing Adam in there. But So the next one I have is a uh, debut novel by Soho Teen. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's a YA novel. It's Love, Hate, and Other Filters by Samira Ahmed. Love, Hate, and Other Filters? Yes, like Instagram filters. Oh, man. if you had, <laughs> It would have taken me a while to get there without a visual. <laughs> I am not very hip. Um, yeah, I know. Um, mm. So this, this book, I am good friends with Samira's agent, and I am just kind of in love with both of them, and I've heard really amazing things about this book, and I'm very excited, uh, and I can't wait to read that. So if you see that one, I would also like that one. <laughs> um, and finally, I kind of, uh, just to give you all, all you writers listening, kind of a, a throw, I want something that is not in the categories that I represent as an agent, just me as a reader. Uh-huh. Just me as a reader. So what you're saying is everyone should send you exactly this kind of book. Everyone <laughs> should start a, in querying their, in my you. slush pile. Everyone should start querying you with this book that you don't represent and you'd really like that and you'd respond really nicely to every single email that comes in. No. That's Laura at Red. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't do that. But what you should do is grab me The Gray Bar Hotel by Curtis Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a Scribner book. And it is actually a book of short stories, and it's a debut collection. So the deal is, is that Curtis Dawkins um, got an MFA at somewhere prestigious. I don't really know. But the the kind of the big thing is that after he got an MFA, he had trouble with drugs and alcohol and ended up um, breaking into somebody's home and killing somebody. Mm. So he is in – he's a convicted murderer serving life without parole right uh-huh. now. Uh-huh. Um, and so his book is a series of short stories that kind of like takes you inside prison and prisoners. Oh. And there's like humor and insight. And it's basically like – I think it's like the more literary, less like affluent, bougie, like uh, Orange is the New Orange Black. Orange is the New Black, yeah. Which I am like really <coughs> excited about. I I just learned hmm. about this book this afternoon and sounds pretty I, good. I really want to read it. Huh. It's by Scribner er, Scribner is publishing it. Yeah. Um What are yours? Okay. Besides so. the Hillary book. <laughs> yeah. It is not the Hillary book. Um, we, we should mention that. That Hillary is gonna be a BA. <laughs> oh, she is, yeah. No, she's gonna A Night with Hillary Clinton is the name of the event. Um it's one of the evenings. I guess she's gonna be it's gonna be kind of just a talk and um I don't know. I guess she's got a book coming out in September. Yeah, or they're going to be featuring her other books um, too. But I think the the most important point about Hillary being at BEA uh-huh. is that I was literally texted or like contacted <laughs> through other means by four different publishing people uh-huh. going, "Did you hear about BEA?" <laughs> I was like, "Uh, yes." Was that the tone? Yes. I feel like that might not. have You might, were one of them. That might. Okay, that was the tone from me. I feel like that <laughs> might not have been the tone from other people. It was the tone from everybody. <laughs> Did you know. hear about BEA? Yeah, I said, "Why, yes, first, I work in this industry." That's different than the first tone you gave us. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, tell me about yours. So the books that I like, um, the first one that I am seeing here that I'm excited about is one you thankfully pointed out to me, or I was going to miss it. Um, is uh, Jennifer Egan has a new book. And you I love you some Jennifer. I do love Jennifer. Um, she's really great, but that's another Scribner book. Um, it's called Manhattan Beach. It looks like I don't know anything about it other than um, that I think she's a fabulous writer, and I can't wait to immediately purchase whatever this is. Do you and think except, we get Scribner to like sponsor us or except something? Except someone is going to get me this galley, and I won't have to buy the book. So we all are winners here today. <laughs> <laughs> Scribner, um, if you're listening. Okay, so the next one um, I'm really interested in is uh, from Penguin Press. 
Um, it is, and she's actually, it looks like she's actually going to be there signing. Um, this is Celeste Ung. Um, she's written uh, a, a novel called Little Fires Everywhere, um, and she's going to be signing 200 of those, um, which is great. Um, and then I tried, I tried, listener, I tried to not open this list and just geek out at what FSG was publishing. You did, uh, though. You did. <laughs> and yet, um, we've got a new Jeffrey Eugenides uh, book, and we've got a new Alison McDermott uh, novel, both of whom are obviously quite good. Um, so I'm excited about those. And again, if you are at BEA, please, please, please send them. I don't know what, I don't know what we can give you. We'll give you something. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Can <laughs> I can I point out one more thing about please. BEA before please. we leave? Yeah. So they, these lists, um, there's an adult list and there's a children's list published by Publishers Weekly. That's all of the things that are that are coming yeah. out, right? Yeah. All of the all of the things that are going to be available. Um, and I would like to point out that Random House, uh-huh. a big five, Random House, everywhere is either, you know, giving 100 galleys, 150, 200, et cetera. Random House, the main imprint, uh-huh. is giving away 192 copies of everything. Very Just 192. Yeah. Like, I want to know where those other eight went. It's some sort of, there's got to be some sort of, like, print run thing going on there. Um, but all or, of these books are different sizes, so it's not even about the number of boxes. Yeah. Right? Well, like, it's got to it be something. Quantities. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's a mathematical or really boring manufacturing reason for that. But If you know about that, <laughs> if you know the answer to the other eight copies, I want to know. Um, I'm actually also seeing here, it looks like Random House has a new Salman Rushdie uh, book coming out. Which, yeah, he's pretty tight. Which I would be excited to read. So... The main thing that we want to talk about today um, is something that, like most of the things we discussed, was sort of born out of a conversation you and I had recently. We were stuck in the car for five hours together. (laughs) We had lots of conversations. That was was something. Um, But we were talking about, um, and not to get into the the, uh, details here too much, but we were talking about an offer on a book that one of us had recently received, and the... The conversation got around a kind of a little bit of not nervousness, but I guess like professional intrigue based on the advance amount that was being offered. And we were discussing how, you know, the offer had been for a certain amount of money. And we were kind of hoping it had been a little bit higher. And not just because, well, you know, more money is better money, but because we started getting into all these things about how we felt that the ramifications for how the book was going to be published was actually going to change based on that higher advance. And we got into things like expectation and in-house support and... Front list versus front list versus Yeah, exactly. All these things that sort of tied in to, um, you know, just what really was a simple advance on royalties, which in the end of the day, honestly, doesn't end up mattering that much if you end up covering it um, or earning out, as it's called. Um, and so... I think it raises a lot of interesting questions about power in publishing. I think that, um, you know, there are certain little levers on whether it's author clout or whether it's, you know, advance amount or whether it's, like you're saying, front list or back list. um, That sort of makes the publishing experience different for every single book that goes in and it creates wildly – um, it creates wildly different publishing experiences. And so to kind of break in to the various ways that really no two books – are ever published alike. Um, let me ask you this. What does an advance mean to you as someone whose job it is ostensibly to fight for them? That's a good question. Um, kind of – so I, I work with a lot of presses that don't offer advances. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's interesting. So like talk about that. Yeah. OK. So so basically just to kind of not to get too deep in the weeds yeah. here, but an advance is an advance against future earnings. Yeah. So when you see, you know, somebody was paid twenty five thousand dollars for a book, mm-hmm. um, they don't get they don't see a dime until after the amount of royalties that they would receive on the sales of the books equals twenty five thousand right. dollars. Right. It's an okay. advance. It's an advance payment of the royalties you would have earned anyway. Correct. So so typically, you know, a good a good way to kind of work with that if you're not, you know, as long as you're not like a celebrity is, OK, like this publisher is confident that I can sell X number of copies. Right. Right. Um, and you can do the math based on, you know, the. You the know, royalty the rate royalty and rates the, and 
Yeah, all sorts yeah. of little things. Yeah, it like becomes that. a little bit more complicated because the royalty rates are different for ebooks versus print books versus whatever. But you can do the general kind of thing to you know to see like what would they consider a nice success? Well, like so when would we get money? Well, so let's yeah, let's stop there for a second and kind of um, break down what it is you just said there because I think that that's important. Um, the what you're saying that is that you are using an advance as a signifier for how well you think the publisher thinks this book is going to do yeah. in a certain way, yeah. right? Because you're saying that, you know, a publisher, you know, a publisher's nightmare um, is to pay too much for a book. Um, as we've <laughs> seen um, time and time again, it's part of the big reason why um, the only books that get real money are ones by proven celebrity brand names, um, you know, things like that, right? Um, no one wants to overpay for books with good reason. Publishers are strapped for cash these days, so you get it. But um, so when you see a publisher offer a certain amount on a book, based on some very simple math, you can set, you can look at it and say, it seems clear to me that a publisher believes that it is a safe bet that this book is going to sell X amount of copies. Yep, and that's that's not to say. So I don't I don't go in and do that math and think, okay. Like they think that this book is only going to sell this number of copies. Right. It's that they'll easily be able to sell that many it's copies. It's that they view that as a safe bet. Yes, a safe bet. Because they're hoping to sell more and they should believe that they're going to sell more. Yeah. Because that's good for everybody. Yep. And it's not this many copies in its whole life. It's usually this many copies in a year or two. Yeah. Right? Um, and so that's really great. You know, that's, you know, that's kind of nice. It kind of, you know, if you explain that to your author, they get a little, you know, boost of confidence. If you explain, you know, like, like 10 people, like 10,000, not 10 people, 10,000 people will like have your book when you are out. Yeah. That's really exciting. Like who knows 10,000 people? Nobody. Um, But I work with a lot of presses that don't do advances and they do that because it allows them to keep more operating cash in house, Uh which means that their their dollars go farther in terms of what their dollars are used to create a book on. Well, it also means – yeah, that's true. It also means that every time they're paying you – um, that's money you've earned. Every time that they're yeah. paying you money, they're paying themselves a lot more money. You know, yeah. there's no at no point are they, you know, they're giving you a cut of money they're already making. Yeah. You know, it, there's less of an upfront cost. In fact, there's barely, you know, in a sense, there's not much of an upfront cost because they're getting in a chunk of money and they're giving you a little bit of it as opposed to, um, you know, having to give you a chunk that they haven't earned themselves yet. Yeah. But but so for publishers that don't offer advances, normally the chunk that they're giving you is higher because they're betting on you the a same way they're – Yep, mean, a higher yep. royalty rate because they're asking you to bet on them the same way that they're betting on you. Okay. So let's – so that's interesting um, because you wouldn't ever think – as someone who works with these sorts of presses, and I do want to go back to the mm-hmm. advance thing here in a second, you would never say – this publisher doesn't think they're going to sell any copies because they didn't offer you in advance. Um, so that means that you, you know, there's different there's different levers involved, yeah. right? Because one thing, you know, the thing with an advance is that it creates it creates responsibility. Yeah, it creates skin in the game. You know what I mean? As someone who's worked on both sides, as someone who was in house, you know, anytime a book got a big advance, yes, it meant that we were excited about it. It meant that we were ready to. Um, you know, it meant that we believed it would be successful to a certain degree and we were willing to kind of front that money and get that author in-house. But it also meant that there suddenly became a lot of work to do because, you, you know, it takes work to sell a lot of copies of anything. Yeah. And so – You were created, responsible for making that money so back. And so it created this kind of leverage, which is kind of what I want to talk about today, um, that kind of tilted in the favor of the author. And I think some of that isn't just – you know, that's not purely monetary. Like the victory of getting in advance – you know, in the publishing game is not just restricted to, oh, it's good that we got the money now instead of later. It's that we got the money now and a publisher is now on the hook to sell that many copies or they're um, or they've done a, a, a bad job in a way, right? Like they didn't do what they thought they were going to, you know, because you don't give back amounts of your advance, right? If you give me, you know, $10,000 and then my book sells no copies, um, barring most, you know, most standards, you know, you don't have to give that money back unless you like fail to deliver the manuscript or something, yeah. right? Like you can, you'd have to give it back if you failed to hold up your end of creating the book. But in terms of sales, it's just considered a flop. A publisher usually has to eat that. 
And so because the publisher doesn't want to eat that, suddenly you've got them on the hook, right? Suddenly they're beholden to you as an author and an agent on the other side that in a way that maybe they aren't, you know, otherwise. Because, you know, they can, you know, if you offer nothing, and you're about to tell me why offering nothing is much uh, more complicated than the picture I'm painting. Yeah. But if you offer nothing, you're not necessarily, you know, it sells what it sells, you know? There's less. That gives you the luxury of, of mid-listing it. It gives you the luxury of um, doing things and kind of treating it as non-essential cash, um, you know, things like that. And um, so I don't know. Like to me, the advance and the reason it's um, sort of an important indicator often has less to do – and the kind of, it kind of got into what we were talking about, right? Because I was worried that um, – the mode of how this book we were discussing was going to be published was going to change because of a different threshold, right? Yeah. Um, because a certain number meant something specific to me in terms of the way I thought they were going to deal with it, and a certain different number meant that maybe that you know things were going to be changed. That they that, maybe didn't care as much. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Maybe they kind of viewed it as you know a different sort of book than I did and the author did, and you know, and you know, the deal sort of represents a vision of the book. You know, um, but so the, you know, and getting, so getting the advance gives you a certain amount of leverage. It means that you can, you know, push a little harder on things like publicity and marketing. It means you can check in a little more because they, um, because they have to do it. Yeah. And publishers, you know, many of whom are really, really great. Um, most of them are understaffed. Most of those people, all those people are overworked. As we've talked about like, before. As we've talked yeah. about a million times, right? Like, and so if there's ever an opportunity to kind of save some time, they're going to take it. And honestly, they should take it, but they're not going to take it on my book. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> not this one. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's, and that's kind of the rules. But so there are other levers in play. Yeah. And so that's what I, I want. So now I want you to tell us, like, you work with presses that do a very good job of publishing a lot of these books that don't offer advances. And so yeah, talk about that I, relationship Okay, so a I, bit. I feel like the the relationship with the money and the advance that you're describing yeah. is something that is specific to houses that offer advances mm-hmm. because there's precedent set right it's it's precedent like how precedent is an interesting concept we're going to get into so, in a little bit too so it's like how you know there's there's been all this talk in like hollywood recently about what actresses get paid versus actors in movies right and there's this idea that if somebody with kind of a similar product their acting skill or a book or whatever gets X much money. Mm-hmm. If I get less, I don't matter as much. Mm-hmm. For publishers that have that that go into it and have a no advance game, mm-hmm. right? There is no precedent. They've there done is away no there's there X. is no such thing as um, automatic front list or automatic back yeah. list. Yeah. Right. There is, you know, people who sell better get, you know, maybe a little bit more of that time, but it's very much um it's very much performance based in a yeah. way that yeah. you know having that skin in the game isn't already there. Yeah. So I think that in a way the no advanced presses have a lot more freedom to give for a debut author. Whether or not you want to take the freedom versus you want to take, you know, the the team that's forced to work for and you. And that's because that's because they're not it's not as though they've got six other books on the list that they've given a ton of money to. Correct. That's what, so it creates kind of a, a level playing field. Yeah. And one thing I think to kind of point toward that scenario as well is that, um, you know, advances and amounts, they're, it, it's not a perfectly – at the time they're being given out, it's not a perfectly – it's not like this perfect meritocracy. You know what I mean? Like certain books you have to pay more for, you know, on the acquisition side than others – um, not because they are quote unquote better books or more you know potentially profitable book, books, but because that's just how the market or the situation demands it. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe you suddenly find yourself in an obnoxious bidding war with one other press, or maybe you find yourself, um, you know, maybe it's an author. You know, and you talk about precedent. The one thing advances do is it creates a precedent of an advance. You know, suddenly you've yep. got book number two, and they say, "Well, I got paid this much last time. Um, Why don't I get paid this much this you know, time?" And so you get into, um, you know. That those monies, as they get given out, um, it's not necessarily it's it's not a perfect indicator. And so, what you're describing this flat level playing field, it does, in a sense, give a certain amount of um, a fighting chance in house. It's got pros and cons yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but you know it. 
it allows for for some wiggle room. Yeah. Um, you know, another you know, like a a con, but also you know potentially a really great boon to yeah. a house that does offer advances is that if you earn out really quickly on your first book. Mm-hmm. When it comes time to execute that option clause, yeah. they're going to snatch it up, and yeah. they they might offer you more. Yeah, um, you know, and they'll they'll continue to keep investing in you with that option clause and kind of snatching up your next yeah. books in a way that's really exciting. Um, but if you don't earn out, they might not offer on another book. Well, so that's there's an interesting dynamic in play there, I think, because on the one hand. As an agent, um, and I guess obviously, you know, it's always more complicated than money. It's about finding the right fit. It's about finding a team that's passionate about the book. But it's also but, about money. Sure. But <laughs> let's say, but just speaking strictly in terms of the money, um, you want as much for your author as possible. Yeah. Right? You're trying to get, you know, you're trying to come to your author with a deal that says, hey, we got you this. You know, what do you think? Like, and then you can, you, you've done a good job. The author's happy. You know, every, you know, the publisher is enthused and you've kind of created a good situation. Um, but the higher, I mean, just based on simple math, the higher the advances, the less likely you are to earn out, right? And so you've created kind of this teeter-totter of expectation where if you don't earn out, which is something that, you know, publishers end up tending to resent in a certain yeah. way, right? Like they, um, you know, publishers don't like giving away free money, nor should they, but... Um, you know, you can end up, you know, the relationship in the long term, as you're talking about, like with that second book, like you can leave some bad feeling in people's mouths, you know, um, because we feel, you know, you know, you don't want to feel like you've overpaid and yeah. having, you know, an author, you know, be considered overpaid in house is also not a good situation. Or so dropped it's like, by the publisher exactly. and you have to go elsewhere and exactly. then they look up your book on BookScan and realize that you don't sell. Like that's not a, that's not a good there's position a of, for me to be in to sell a book. Right. There's a lot of – yeah, there's a lot of things like that. And so it's like this um, – it's this weird game of you want all the money but you also um, – you're also rooting pretty hard for the publisher to live up to that end because you also want the relationship not to sour. And so, you know – there, there does kind of become this game of, of I don't know, I guess I, I want to say chicken because it's like... <laughs> it because, is kind of chicken. It, no, it, it kind of is because you want a ton of money, but you also need to make sure that it's not an unreasonable amount for your future you know, relationships and the way you're going to talk about them in-house. And, um, but it's not the only thing, right? There are other things that kind of... You know, if the question is... And let me put it to you this way. Um, so here's my next question to you. Yes. What makes a publisher work hard on a book in-house? We've identified one thing, money. Yep. Right? A publisher that has offered a book a lot of money or some – even some money, not even a lot. But like some money suddenly is on the hook um, probably enthusiastically. Like we make it sound like suddenly they're like, you know, they've kind of become indentured servants or something to this book. You know, that's not – you know, it is usually a happy thing, right? Like a publisher's when they feel enthusiastic, they want to work for it. So um, – but what else makes a publisher work? Um, like as, and as an agent, sometimes that's the job, right? Like it's not necessarily to like demand they do things, but to like stay on them a little, you know, yeah. and, and they want to stay on you because maybe you, you know, your job is to get the author to do things, yeah. right? It's becomes kind of this give and take as a team thing where each side is sort of like lightly and like passive aggressively, like <laughs> <laughs> demanding that, um, you know, each side is kind of pulling its own weight to kind of get to this end point. So like what else on your end? do you view as like an asset in that sort of unspoken negotiation that's always happening? So what I what I always like to do is I, you know, and Red Sofa is very, very unique in this in that we require all of our fiction authors to do um, a proposal. Uh-huh. And in a proposal, it includes marketing ideas. It includes identifying yeah. the audience. It has all of this stuff. Yeah. And, and the purpose of that is to kind of – make it a little bit easier for the publicity and marketing people to kind of – they already have the ideas, then they just need to implement them. To invi- – yeah. But what it also does is it also – by doing this with the author, it empowers the author to understand what they are capable of doing in their own marketing and publicity sure. of their book, right? And so generally what I find myself doing with my authors is, you know, kind of just like set my authors on a path where it's like – Great, we're going to be published. You should maybe contact that blogger you know. Yeah. Or you know, and and so once yeah. once an once an author goes to the publicity person and says, "Hey, I have a request for this thing. Can we do a giveaway?" Yeah. That automatically you know makes them 
work a little bit harder. Right. I think having Id- so that that is a good having point. ideas having ideas on the author end is a good way of spurring action on the publisher end because um, it. It's one. It's easier to be able to just help an author with his or her own idea than it is to come up with one on yourself on your own. It takes less time. It's usually more effective because you've got the author doing something they're comfortable yeah. with. Um, and so, so that's good. And I think you know, there's a certain amount of um, you know back and forth in terms of um, accountability that comes with um, you know doing a proposal in in fiction because suddenly you're promising more than just the book, right? Yeah. Like, as at the same time that a publisher is promising you all this money, you're promising them not only the manuscript, but these marketing ideas and these contacts. Like, you know, when you list all these people, you know, the publisher at some point is going to turn around and say, all right, time to get in touch with these people who you said that you know, you know? And so it kind of becomes, I don't know, it becomes this back and forth. And so, you know, I I wanted to bring it up because there's such extremes in the you know, and it's the ways books get published. And it's how, um, you know, pushing leverage and pushing leverage and pushing leverage can actually create some really extreme situations either way. I mean, I've seen books in-house um, that have gotten have gotten literally nothing. You know, they sign up, you know, they barely even get, you know, they barely even get edited. You know, they barely get, um, you know, they're just kind of run through the mill and put out into the world and their sales are sort of treated as gravy. And the reason that happens is because there was nothing on the author or agent end that they were able to push with, yeah. right? There was no author clout, you know, there was, and which is something I think that kind of ends up being another big factor. Like how big a deal is your author in his own, in his or her own way, you know, because the other extreme um, is our friend who, um, you know, he has an imprint. Be- <laughs> he became so big that they eventually just gave him the keys to the damn house, right? Like James Patterson has his own imprint at this point. He's making hiring and firing decisions in his publisher. Like that's wild. You know what I mean? And the reason that kind of stuff can happen is because you keep selling and you keep pushing a little bit further and you keep selling and, and you, you keep get that pushing leverage. a little bit further and you keep pushing until eventually you have become completely essential, right? And obviously that is a singular – you know, James Patterson is a singular um, case. I was looking um, – if you look at like the galley numbers real quick, back to the thing we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier at BEA, um, all the numbers, it's like, you know, 150, you know, 75 – um, I think Patterson has um, it's like 550 of his books are going to be there, and they'll go. You know, I mean, like he they will go. <laughs> um, that's the thing with him, but, but but that that sort of thing happens, and then um, yeah, no, it also. I, but you know what? When that when that power shift happens, oftentimes I want to say like James Patterson has done amazing things for Hachette, right? Like amazing things has you know. Yeah. Put books on the New York Times bestseller list, yeah. has has boosted other people's reputations, yeah. has done lots of good stuff. Yeah. But I'd also like to point out that when those levers shift towards the author, Things, sometimes shit, shit like hits the fan. Yeah. Like if you ever see a book by a very, very, very famous author yeah. and just a horrible cover, I think that when an author becomes very big name, they become very protective of their reputation, as does the publisher. Right. Um, so what that means, it means a lot of like trying not to step on toes. It means a lot of considering the book in terms of a long-term relationship and keeping your fancy famous author happy. Often at the expense of the book. At the expense of marketing the book itself. This The current book. Because yeah, the it, idea is if we piss him off, he'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Right? So, so you know, like – Final cover approval yeah. can get worked into the contract. Yep. You know, it can work in certain levels of, you know, this this is less in the contract, but, yeah. you know, certain choices in the editorial process mm-hmm. where you just, you know, decide, hmm, I don't really need that. I don't really need this editor. Like, I'm yeah. not going to pay attention to their what they're saying. And it's okay. Just because people. The author real... matters more than the editor at this point. Right. So that, so the matters. That's an interesting. That's an interesting word here, and I think that's kind of where I've been trying to get um, this whole time, kind of circuitously, is every single book deal that happens, and every single publishing process eventually becomes a question of who matters, right? Yeah. And so in that deal, and kind of like what we were talking about, the way we were able to look at the very basic details of 
um, you know, a standard book offer that, that, that I received, it presents a vision, right? It presents a vision of more than just numbers. It presents here's who might matter in this equation. In the larger equation in the, and in the smaller and one. And in the smaller one. You know, with between the author and this house, you know, how beholden each party might feel to each other. And you do get these situations like you're describing where, you know, an author can eventually become so big that they start to matter more than some of the staff um, in terms of like the publisher's bottom line, which creates horror stories, by the way. Yep. Um, it creates not only – it can create um, – well, it can create a worse book, first of all, because you get an author who doesn't necessarily feel that – um, the editing is going well and you get switching editors, you get delays. Like you're saying, you get a bad cover. I'm not sure what happened in pushing up the Underground Railroad yeah. a month and a half yeah. because Oprah wanted to. Like I'm not sure what – I mean yeah. what could have been done because they had to squish that timeline, right? Well, so that – yeah, that must have been um, – because that's a decision that you make 10 times out of 10. Right. Yeah. When, oh, Oprah, yeah. when Oprah says we want the book, you give Oprah the book. That's like the theme of this episode, basically. Um, Oprah gets but, everything. But what that doesn't, but what that does happen when I'm talking about horror stories is suddenly everybody's got to really bust ass, right? Suddenly the proof's got to be done faster. The copy, you know, I don't know where they were at with the book. I mean, probably they were probably pretty close to being done. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, if they had sensed, um, depending on where they were, and as I recall the story, I think they probably were. Um, I think they were pretty close to finished copy, so I'm not sure it hit them. Well, it didn't hit the editorial. It hit sales. It hit all these other – you know, it hit different departments. But um, I guess I'm thinking of, you know, like editors and like production people and, you know, designers. And like those people start getting fed to the wood chipper in situations <laughs> like this. You know what I mean? Like and, you know, you get these um, – you know, I've seen it so many times where, um, you know, I, we would go to these cover meetings and – you know, our designer, like his first question every single time was, how big a deal is this author? Really? And, yeah. That's no, and, fascinating. And the question, and it, and it always came back to, and what he was asking was, when I come up with something good, is it going to get accepted? Because the bigger the deal the author was, the less likely that was true because the more push that person had to his own personal artistic whims, you know? I mean, you consider and, why Fifty Shades of Grey, the movies, are so bad. It's because E.L. James had control over the final script. Exactly. So it's – you get certain things like that and um, and obviously, you know, most of the books that we're selling, you know, right now, you know, we're not worried about, you know, giant, you know, things like that. I mean, but – we but are, it shifts the whole conversation because shift. if more focus gets paid on the authors who are changing their own covers yeah. and taking up all that time, yeah. that's time that's taken away from other people in interesting yeah. ways. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I mean, and that gets, I think you're right. And it gets back to, you know, kind of the uh, perfectly level, um, no advance press, right? Mm -hmm. Is because a lot of that stuff can get, you know, pushed away. And the people who, um, you know, if someone gets hot, you know, you can treat them as such because you don't have time and resources tied up elsewhere. It's an interesting it's an it's yeah. an interesting conversation beyond the fact that beyond the way that writers view it, which is that, you know, publishing is a gatekeeper industry. Like there, yeah. there's a lot more to it than yeah. that in very kind of complicated, nuanced ways that, you know, as as we see different books pop up, as we, as we see different authors pop up, mm -hmm. you know, as new models are being created in yeah. publishing, yep. it'll be really interesting to see how those levers change. Yeah. So we have a right tip this week, mm -hmm. and it's a very simple one. <laughs> <laughs> and here it is, folks. Your book needs a plot. Yeah. So how do we come up with this? So uh, Eric and I were at a writing workshop all weekend. It wasn't a conference. It was very much a workshop where people are coming yeah. and they're, you know, starting books from scratch. Yeah. They're, you know, kind of putting putting finish into, finishing touches on things. Yeah. Um, oftentimes very, very newbie, newbie people. Um, and one thing I noticed is that there's a big difference between this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then the book is over. Right. There's a big difference between that 
and a, a story with a plot. And like causality and tension and, and all these rising things. rising tension and, and a climax yeah. and conflict and all of that. And, and the big thing really that I'm saying here is, you know, it kind of gets back at to back to our tip about middles a while back. Yeah. Um, and it's about, you know, like study plot structure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just the hero's journey. You know, there are a lot of different types. But all of it needs to keep us moving and yeah. everything needs to tie into one another. It can't just be you know, the story of this person's year and that's it. You know, we need to feel rewarded when we get to the end. And I think that's the big thing about the structure of a book, right? Yeah. No, I mean, well, so the thing that ends up being rewarding, and I think the way to think about this at the same, and it's the same thing we kind of talked about with the middles, is really identifying what's at stake in any particular moment. You know, the thing that drives plots forward, I think, is, uh, is conflict and yeah. tension, you know, and tension is the thing that, um, comes when conflict is either looming or happening or, um, you know, things like that. And so at any point, you know, if it feels like um, your events aren't necessarily leading to the next, really think about, you know, a good way, a good question I always ask and I ask authors when we're talking is uh, who wants what right now? You know, get back to, get back to motivations, get back to objectives um, for your characters. And how is what they're doing and how, getting yeah, them and what how, they want. Yeah, exactly. And how are they working towards accomplishing something? And that's how you get scenes that lead into one another. That's how you get... Um, that's how you get a book. Yeah. That's how you get a book with an actual plot as opposed to a book with just things happening. Yep. Very, very basic. But, you know, sometimes it's even for the even for the seasoned writers, it's a good idea to go back to basics. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this, our 30th episode of Print Run. Remember, our query show is already out on Patreon.com. Our first pages show comes out next Thursday, May 25th. Send us your queries and first pages to printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you for our regular show next week. Bye.